I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And we're back after a bit of a hiatus for Pilot Club. That's Drew, right. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I have to have a bit of a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. I, I've had COVID um, and I've recovered a week and a half ago, but I'm still feeling a little bit vague. Right, right, right. A little, right, bit, right, little right. bit of a little bit of a brain drain. I, I think I told you I was I was talking to someone about Pusha T's latest album, which is called it's it's almost I can't even remember now. It's called it's almost dry or it's nearly dry, and I kept on calling it it's still wet. So I was just talking to this person over and over again about this new album, getting the title exactly wrong. Even this anecdote, I think, is... is <laughs> I don't know where this anecdote you're, is going. You're a survivor now. You're yeah, a survivor. exactly. If this anecdote, <laughs> I feel, is, is descending into a bit of a post-COVID brain drain. Um, you just got back from a massive road trip too. You drove to Adelaide and back. I did, I did. I, uh, what was the highlight? I um, definitely, uh, I, I reacted against the, all the lockdowns that we went through yep. and... Uh, yeah, hit the open road, hit the dusty trail. Yeah, I mean, you've always been anti-lockdowns, anti-vax, right? <laughs> that's, 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 that's your line in the sand. I'm, I'm with Sean Penn here. Yeah, yeah. I, will, I will not return to any workplace unless everyone has been vaccinated. Which is a nice segue, <laughs> Sean Penn and workplaces, into our first series. That's right, gaslit. that's right. It's so, gaslit. It's gaslit. So gaslit is, it's a Watergate narrative, and it's basically... It's, it's a hard series. It's hard to get a hold on what the series is from the pilot. It in is. Some ways, it I is. Think. This is definitely one of those series where the pilot, I think, is probably the most, mm, the, the least clear indication of what it's going to, of what, how the series will unfold and who will, in fact, be the protagonist. Who will be the main character. Mm. So the, like, it, it seems like at some level it's an adaptation of the slow, the, um, uh, the slow podcast slow burn yeah the, the, the slow burn podcast yeah. slow burn yeah which is which the tax on uh, political issues tax on mean, political issues yeah they did one on the Lewinsky exactly um, controversy as well exactly um, so you know uh, in fact I was I was kind of so uncertain at some level about what the focus of the series was, was going to be that I looked up the official description mm. which so that it's about the untold stories of Watergate mm. and I think that that kind of captures part of the tension of the series. So on the one hand, there's this briefing that the series is going to be about what's untold about mm. Watergate. But on the one hand, there is this very clear focus on one particular character, Martha Mitchell. So mm. The mouth to, of the South. The mouth of the, the, mouth <laughs> of the South. Um, so just to fill in the backstory there, her husband, John N. Mitchell, who's played here by Sean Penn in a pretty, in a pretty ridiculous performance. <laughs> a scenery-chewing performance, Absolutely. we might say. Yeah, but, yeah. but maybe all the better for it. I feel like there's traces of Russell Crowe in The Loudest Voice. Here. Absolutely, Just the it's, jowls, the it prosthetics. Is, it is the same, definitely the same. Uh, same trooper of method, baroque, method acting, baroque kind of yes. extremity, extreme fat suit, extreme fat suit. Yeah, and so he and, and exactly so the jowl cannon, the jowl cannon. <laughs> so so on the one hand, it's said. So the story that Slowburn really focuses on in detail is the story of Martha Mitchell. So her husband Johnny and Mitchell was the Attorney General, Nixon's Attorney General. And she was, you know, an outspoken socialite who would often ring reporters in the middle of the night and give them goss on Nixon, on the Republican administration, and just general stuff about town in DC. And the the basic gist of that podcast and of this series is that um, Martha Mitchell was the first person to figure out what was happening at Watergate. Mm. And so instead of... So, you know, the first step in shutting down Watergate was shutting down... Uh, Martha Mitchell. So she was held captive in California Hotel for a couple of days. She was physically restrained. She was wow. sedated. Yes, this stuff this is story, quite extreme. This, this story seems to you know, really 
obviously it really takes off after episode one. Well, and well, well yes and no. So this is something that interests me. I'll come back to this in a moment. But just the, the sequel to it is that eventually she and um, her husband separated. She died quite young. And Nixon always blamed the Watergate affair on her, not because she exposed it, but because he said that having to manage her meant that John Mitchell wasn't minding the store when it came to Watergate. So she became mm. a distraction that allowed the Watergate stuff to get out of hand. So on the one hand, the show is interested in this part of the story that we don't normally hear, the Martha Mitchell story. And it's obviously pairing it with... A, it's kind of combining the Watergate narrative with a more modern, you know, Me Too, gaslit kind of narrative. But on the other hand, it's purporting to tell the untold stories behind Watergate. And I think that from the beginning, at least, there is a tension between that. I mean, something I was thinking is, you know, she was she was only held captive for three days. I mean, that's a long time, obviously. Mm. But mm. is it an... It doesn't feel like quite enough to sustain a series, mm. and I didn't think it was even quite enough to sustain a podcast. So it feels like, it feels like the show is in this weird space where it has this this defining central character and incident, her and her being basically held captive, but it doesn't quite know how to expand that out into a historical narrative, and so it's kind of dancing around it with this untold stories of Watergate mm. vibe. Well, that's intriguing, yeah. and I'm I'm interested that you do say that because I went into this not knowing really any I do not obviously know the, the general mm. broad outlines of the Watergate scandal but nothing about this series nothing about the podcast mm. and nothing about what the podcast really honed in on mm. what was unique about it um, and I, I really even didn't have the sense that Martha Mitchell was the central character in this right. at all okay. because the focus of the of the the pilot of Gaslit at least increasingly becomes John Dean yes Um, who in this case is played by Dan Stevens. Mm. And uh, Martha Mitchell becomes quite decentralised as the pilot goes on. And I I kind of felt that was an issue with the pilot in some Mm. ways. I I don't know about you, but I felt that doing a Watergate narrative is really hard, right? Because, I mean, All the President's Men has done it so well. Mm. And not only has it done it, but it set the scene for an entire decade of cinema. I mean, I feel like all of New Hollywood basically comes down to those car park scenes with deep throat absolutely like that, that's it's done it so well and also i mean having read the book recently as well like what you come away from i mean the, the carl bernstein and bob woodwood book what you come away from after that book and that film is a sense of how much will always be untold like yes. there is so much to the conspiracy that we, we will never know and it is so yes. extensive i just feel like purporting to tell a story about the untold elements of watergate that's a really big that's a really big thing to do just because that stuff is already inherent to Watergate. Yes. And I just, I kind of felt like for this pilot, most of the stuff was on the Watergate stuff rather than the Martha Mitchell stuff. And just to me felt like a very pale imitation of that. I mean, I think it's going for a different thing. Mm. But I, I, yeah, what do you think? I thought that was, I thought that was an issue that she, I I was just waiting for Julia Roberts to come back on and Sean Penn, a lot of this series. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think as well, like something that was so impressive about All the President's Men Mm. and I guess the conspiracy Mm. itself is that there's a kind of sublimity that you have with a conspiracy where it's only glimpsed Mm. and it's full extent and full contours and never really fully revealed. Somewhere in those shadows of the car park. Exactly. Somewhere in the car park in those shadows. Exactly. And maybe the kind of almost conceptual confusion about the players and what exactly happened, who did what, Mm. what was authorised, what wasn't, is partly 
the intrigue and the appeal of this. It's funny you say that because the book itself, I think, is is quite confusing at times. Mm. It's so detailed. Oh, but absolutely. The, the but movie as well. The movie yeah. even more so. But the confusion is part of the texture. Yes, yeah. exactly right. And the ambience. And there's the procedural element of mm. you know uncovering this, you know, going from you know getting the the the, uh, the lower people in the hierarchy to flip, and then to kind of tell them that mm. the uh, the people higher up the hierarchy, and just to go through this kind of incredible sublime procedural. Mm. Uh, moment, and I think in some ways to tell a blow-by-blow chronology about what actually happened in Watergate mm. makes this seem not only not sublime but rather banal. But also, at not, times. but also not very realistic as yes. well. Like not plausible. Like the impression I got from reading all the president's men was within the, even within the Nixon administration, communication was very very severely limited mm. to certain people, and there were very mm. specific and limited channels of communication. Which it mean, which just doesn't capture. Just at a general level, you know, we see so much of the behind the scenes mechanics of the conspiracy, and yet, you know, I don't. It's not very clear what's happening. I mean, that's also true sometimes in all the presidents' men. But there's no sense of the intrigue or the stakes no. or the. Well, there's I mean, almost no intrigue at all. I mean, the way no. that this whole conspiracy is pitched to mm. to John Dean, who appears to be the fall guy, mm. is in the, the most absurd. Uh, terms that you couldn't it would literally be unimaginable that any any you know senior political uh, any senior member of a political establishment would do. I mean, of course we have Trump, so you know, <laughs> sometimes the the conspiracy is out in the open. But it just seemed like there was something quite caricature about the way this whole conspiracy was pitched. And I think that particularly reached fever pitch mm. in the characterization of uh, Gordon, Gordon, Liddy. Gordon Liddy, yeah, yeah, um, who is played by uh, Shea Wiggum so, in a performance that is, you know, uh, right out there. You know, it's you know something from the planet Jupiter. And interestingly, that the characterization of G. Gordon Liddy, that part of it, I did appreciate because at least there it went for something lurid. Like you have mm. scenes of him in his basement, you know, <laughs> with pictures of Hitler, pictures of people committing harakiri. He's basically, you know, violent, openly violent all the time. Like I thought, because it's funny, I, I felt like what the series was going for at some level was kind of like an American crime story. Mm. kind of style of kind of high camp treatment yeah. but it didn't have the balance right so at no. times it was like overt farce and at times it was just really boring <laughs> but I felt like the G. Gordon Liddy character was the closest it came to that that histrionic American crime story kind of treatment like he was so over the top I, I put it like this I thought he was the only person in the Watergate stuff who matched the energy of Julia Roberts and Sean Penn yeah I, mean, I agree with I mean, that I, I, Julia Roberts is just Watergate face like I, I mean she was and, and she, I thought, had a very... But it's funny, the American crime story thing also made me realise how much better something like American crime story impeachment dealt with political scandal, I thought. Yes. Like, which it's also based on a slow burn podcast. Like, I, I, watching this reminded me a lot of that and just how well that laid out what happened behind the scenes in that kind of high camp register. Whereas here, the camp didn't work, I thought. I thought it was just... It was farcical at moments. It was stupid at moments. Yeah, well, it was it was intermingled with what was, I think, designed to be quite a hard-hitting drama. Yes. So there was a tonal inconsistency between yes. the characters, and perhaps that was a product of the, the actual characters themselves in this plot, but it didn't it felt, tonally... It felt, it felt stitched together. together. Yeah. So, and, and what it felt stitched together. So exactly, there was no tonal continuity. So one minute, it's really earnest. Yeah. And the next minute, it's really farcical. Yes. And it, just, and it didn't... It didn't kind of... I just didn't think that it, it it worked. So for me, the kind of point of continuity became the Julie Roberts and Sean Penn subplot. Yeah. And I found a lot of it was just... You know, Sean Penn was good, but less limited. <laughs> I feel like a lot of it was just waiting for Julia Roberts to come back on. Yeah. And there'd be times I'm like, I'm like, 
how has 15 minutes gone by and there's been no Julia Roberts? <laughs> yeah. Like how, like she's, you know, for the central character, she doesn't actually have that big no. a, uh, a role in this pilot. And I would have thought that they were going to focus on John Dean. Yes. And and his um, his incipient relationship with the uh, the flight attendant uh, Mo Dean. Yep. Played by Betty Gilpin. I did yep. quite like Betty Betty Gilpin. Yeah, she. I did quite like her character as Mo Dean. And well, that was like that was like one of the few moments where there was something a little bit dynamic happening. Yeah. But again, interestingly, that it's again it's away from the political stuff. Yeah. So you know the, I mean, obviously all this stuff gets wrapped into the political stuff, but. You know, it's it's a big thing to serialize a conspiracy like that, mm. and a serial format like television can really work for it. Yeah, but it's, it's like there was no taste for the conspiracy. <laughs> there was no taste for what made it atmospheric, for what made it memorable, for what made it a touchstone. And at the same time, there was this, you know, sub-American crime story farcical element that just made it even harder to get involved. So it, just, yeah. it almost, for me, worked best as a character study. Of Martha Mitchell, mm. um, it's almost like a sitcom when she and Sean Penn were at home <laughs> yeah. together. It's like at home with the Mitchells. Yes, yes. Their their report, domestic report, was yeah. quite was quite entertaining. Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I mean, the the male female relationships at the centre of this. Obviously, maybe there's a there's a parallelism there between you know Martha Mitchell and um, and in some ways um, John Dean and yep. their relationships and yes. how those relationships, you know. Yes. Um, were affected and affected this conspiracy. So mm. that pairing, I think, was was quite. Well. I found this show quite watchable, um, mm. to be honest. And it had, did have some energy, but mm. I think it didn't have mm. that really strong, <laughs> propulsive narrative momentum that you would really hope from. You know, so a, it, a conspiracy is incredible so and I'm, seminal as this. I'm not sure now. Where, like, I'm realizing that my experience of watching this was exactly the same as my experience of brain fog post COVID. <laughs> so I'm not sure if the brain fog is a part of it. I mean, I, I watched a lot of other stuff post COVID where I didn't have brain fog, but I don't know. I felt like there was something brain foggy about it. Like it was like taking a mild sedative. Like there was <laughs> there was really good stuff happening when Julia Roberts was on the screen, but then apart from that, it was just like. What, like, what is this? Like, what, like, what is like? This is just this is just ambient historical texture. With really? A few, uh, Did I, you feel gaslit? Well, that's something else too. Like, part of me, like, it was obviously obviously what the title is trying to do. It's trying to say, look, take no. It's revisionist. It's like here's a political event, and here's actually the identity politics, the gender politics that took place mm. behind it that you don't mm. hear about. What but do you I, think I, is I, the I, gaslighting? Who well, is being gaslit? Well, I think Martha Mitchell is okay. being gaslit. So. You know, if, if as, as Nixon himself put it, she's the first person to recognise Watergate, she's also the first person to be reassured and silenced into thinking that nothing's happening, or at least to be silenced when she says something's... But okay. I agree, it's an awkward match. Like, it, it, in a sense, like, she, I mean, in a sense she was gaslit, but in a sense she wasn't. Like, she was silenced and she was, you know, smeared all over the tabloids. But it's mm. not, it's not, I don't think it's the same thing as classic gaslighting in the modern sense. So mm. it just felt like what the show was doing in a bit of an opportunistic way was trying to inflect the, what happened here through more contemporary kind of gender politics, which is a really interesting thing to do, but I didn't think the mm. series really knew how to do it. No. Or was even that invested in doing mm. it for lots of it? It was just... And perhaps the actual historical events can't actually carry the weight of that revisionist burden. Well, certainly for a series. I mean, I, I'm not saying that she was only kidnapped for three days, but it's... Yeah. That's got to be the epicenter of the series. And I'm just yeah. wondering, is that enough to dramatise? That should have been the framing device. It should have been the framing device, exactly. I mean, something... And that I'm would curious... have actually given this real yeah. momentum. I agree. That, that, that's a good call. 
I mean, I kind of think too, I wonder will Bernstein and Woodward come into it? Like, will mm. the investigation... And Nixon, who's going to play Nixon? Nixon? I mean, yeah, I know. I kind of feel like maybe maybe Sean Penn should have been Nixon. <laughs> I, feel like it's a missed, I feel like it's a missed opportunity for Sean Penn to be Nixon. Yeah. But I think this actually would be much better if they remade it where Sean Penn played every character, like yep, a kind of absolutely. nutty professor. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of array of caricatures. Well, it would work for the conspiracy, the conspiracy element. <laughs> Sean Penn is Martha Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what do you? So what do you think? Are you? I think I think I'm kind of out with this. Like I, I didn't dislike it. I just thought it was kind of. I just thought it was like a reheated version of, of like. And, it was certainly reheated. Yeah, and I'm also like, I just it's not enough anymore just to do 70s period details. Yeah, I'm, I've. It wasn't a particularly atmospheric show, was no, it? No, it was just like. Yeah. I just just everything was brown. <laughs> yeah. Everything was like light brown. Like it doesn't, like, it might be authentic. They went nuts with the brown decor, but yeah. not much, not much beyond that. No, no. Um, they got that right and they got my, but it's like, there's even a scene where John Dean, John Dean goes to a party to meet Martha Mitchell and he meets her and then he peels off. It's like, what, why are we moving away from Martha Mitchell from Julia Roberts? Like, just bring back Julia Roberts, get her to do Watergate face. Yeah, true. And like, because I felt like, yeah, she she had that American crime story intense. I thought she, I thought she was. I feel like she can't be bad. No, like I no. feel like she's got such charisma. She's constitutionally incapable of being. bad. She can't be bad. Yeah. But apart from her, I was like, I thought this was a bit of a dud. <laughs> you're a hard out. I'm, it sounds like, like you're a hard out. It's like not I'm, even tentative. I'm a hard out. Just I, I thought it was aggressively bland. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm out for that reason. Look, I'm a, I'm, I'm more positive. I'm more up on this show than you. Yeah. But I, look, I, are, are you going to watch it? <laughs> I don't know if you're going to watch it. I feel like you're just you're saying that. I'm on the fence. I'm on yeah. the fence. The idea now, knowing a little bit, now knowing a little bit more uh, about you know the, mm. the uh, kidnapping. But you, but you and... weren't curious enough to find out more, which may, which makes me think that you maybe if it, you wouldn't turn it off. I wouldn't turn it you off. Wouldn't turn it I off. wouldn't turn it off. You wouldn't I wouldn't turn it off. You wouldn't kick it out of bed. I, I might put it on while I'm cooking or something. Yeah, and exactly. my back is largely to the screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's good ambient television. <laughs> it might be good ambient yeah. television. If I want just to feel a, you know, yeah. a seventies vibe, some brown decor, yeah. some inspiration. Seventies inspo. Exactly. <laughs> my only my only caveat is if someone tells me that Julie Roberts becomes much more prominent, I'll probably watch it. But yeah. apart from that, if it just continues in this vein, yeah. just I mean, not to sound like a film snob, but just watch all the president's men. Seriously. <laughs> no, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, cool. Okay, on to our next series. Our next series is Outer Range, which has been described as a science fiction neo-Western mystery thriller, mm. which gives you some flavour of the... Uh, the uh, cross-pollination of genres nice. that is occurring. Cross-pollination was good. <laughs> I like I like cross-pollination. Uh, yeah, so it is um, created by Brian Watkins and his stars uh, Josh Brolin and is an Amazon Prime video exclusive. So it's now streaming on Prime. Now, it features uh, Josh Brolin, who plays Royal Abbott, a Wyoming rancher who is ensconced in a few battles. He's fighting... For his land and his family, uh, there's a hint that uh, his daughter, or his daughter-in-law at least, has mysteriously disappeared. Mm. There are also gaps or ellipses in his own personal history. Mm. So he himself uh, is an orphan, we are led to believe, or at least arrived mysteriously on, on this ranch that he now owns, met his wife there, and has subsequently lived there all his life. Mm. Uh the real spanner mm. is thrown into the works, though, when he discovers a mysterious black void mm. in the uh, outer extremities of his uh, pasture land. This corresponds with the arrival of Autumn, a mysterious drifter played by Imogen Poots. 
Such a good name. <laughs> it's starring Imogen Poots. You're Team Poots. <laughs> I'm Team Poots. Uh, so there are a number of elements at play here mm. which this, uh, this pilot has to juggle. It's funny what you said about Gaslit having moving pieces. This one was almost like three or four pilots in one. It, it was, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And uh, for all its ambition, mm. I actually thought this, this was very intriguing as a pilot. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I have to admit, like, I wasn't... So it's funny, like, I've I've been thinking recently, like, I've realised, like, I'm not a massive fan generally of the Western as a genre. Mm. And I think it's interesting, like, I was trying to think about why that is. And I think there's two reasons. Like, firstly, I don't tend to love solemnity, mm. like, um, unmitigated solemnity. And the Western is often got that yeah it's the home of the taciturn yep self-reliant hero yep exactly and also like it's funny i love i love films and television series that are spatial that are driven by space and on the surface the western seems like that Mm. but often the space is so mythical and so notional that it doesn't actually feel that embodied to me so Mm. that those are two things but i mean it's a lot of westerns i do love so that that side of the Western was here, I thought, in some of the seriousness, and that I didn't really relate to. But then there was a whole other part of the film that seemed almost a series, the part that seemed almost about that in mm. a way that was really interesting. So yeah. I mean, it turns the the Josh Brolin star persona mm. on its head in some ways. Well, another another way of saying that a lot of it I found a bit tedious, but the stuff around the void I loved. Like mm. that was so atmospheric, and it, so it was really interesting. Like I, I wondered whether I was kind of. I was kind of trying to think about it because it reminded me of Yellowstone a little bit. Yes, it, it definitely was Which, reminiscent of Yellowstone. There there was a, there were some scenes of this pilot, probably about 50% mm. of this pilot could have been a Yellowstone Could have been a Yellowstone. And I was trying to think about what that was and I was wondering whether, like, you know, you think about the Western, like what, what, what does a Western mean now? Like the Western is so associated with American cinema. Mm. It's like a heroic genre. And it's also associated with the big screen, mm. you know, like with, you know, it's in the 1950s, you know, Westerns were used as a vehicle for, you know, you know, extreme like panoramic vision kind of stuff so that, that was, you know, used as a counterpoint to television. So what does a Western mean when you're watching it now on a small screen mm. when that when cinema is no longer really a part of the equation for it and that whole American myth of the horizon and myth of the frontier is gone? And I thought both this and Yellowstone were tackling that. And one of the ways I thought this did that, that I really liked, and Yellowstone does too, instead of the horizon being this mythical point of focus, instead it's fixated on all the peripheries of a property. Mm. So, like, you know, there's there's scenes that take place right on the threshold of the property. There's disputes about the threshold mm. of the property. There's a scene where they go out to search for missing cattle and go to all the, the different the different kind of extremities of the property. And the void is almost like another kind of extremity. Like it's like the void, mm. the void stands in for what the horizon once meant. Mm. And whereas the horizon was this horizontal kind of space to aspire to, the void is like vertical. Okay. It's weird to see like vertical space. So I felt like, yeah, like there's something about the horizon that no longer ramifies in Westerns on the small screen now that the frontier myth has been deconstructed, now that America's no longer a global superpower. So instead of the horizon, this had like a, I don't know, Verizon or something. <laughs> it, had, it had this different spatial threshold. Yeah. But also all the anxieties of the Western crystallised around that threshold. So as soon as he finds out about the void, we hear about the missing daughter, uh, daughter-in-law. Mm. Like there's a scene where he throws his land deed into the void. Like the void mm. becomes... The, the void becomes the source of anxiety and sublimity 
in the way that the horizon once was. Yes, that's kind yeah. of that was that was how I felt about it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting genre, the sci-fi western. Yeah, and there's been a few attempts at it recently, yep. as far as I'm aware. Mm. Um, so you know, Cowboys and Aliens was yep. not a very successful attempt. No, this, there. Is probably, <laughs> this is probably a step up from Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> that that just felt like an awkward mismatch. It seems like Jordan Peele's new movie yes. might be in that same vein as a sci-fi western. And and again, that that movement from a horizontal to vertical kind of gaze, like aliens. Mm. You know, like the, all the shots I've seen in the film of people staring up at the sky yeah. instead of looking out at the horizon. And I'm thinking even that movie Arrival had yes. had qualities of a sci-fi western. Certainly Absolutely. the way it was shot in the vistas, yes. in the location of the, the spaceship and yep. the way the characters you know oriented themselves around yep. the spaceship. Maybe Space, space Cowboys, the Clint Eastwood <laughs> film. Yes. Underrated. <laughs> I'm a fan of it anyway, yeah. <laughs> Um, there, there've pro- probably been many more examples in you know uh, comic books and um, and I feel like there's a lot of because we don't watch a lot of sci a huge amount of sci-fi television. No. but I, I sense that there's a lot of sci-fi television that has Western stuff in it as well, yeah. like The Expanse and shows yeah. like that. Yeah, even things like Cowboy Bebop have yes. have elements of that. Yeah. so it is an interesting you know, uh, genre hybrid. Mm. Um, whether it works and whether you know those two genres are natural bedfellows mm. is another another question but one thing i was really concerned about while watching this pilot it's it's something you know that obviously steven spielberg was concerned about when he was shooting jaws is do we show the shark when do we show the yes. shark and if so you know uh you know how do we show it yes and his solution was we show it as late as possible yes and i kept hoping in this pilot all the way through they don't show the shark yes and okay. they never did they yep. never did in yep. this pilot instead whatever extraterrestrial uh, or you know supernatural forces were at play here were never explicitly and I think, uh, foregrounded. And I think that's what's so powerful. Like it's almost like, you know, not to make it all about space, but it's almost like the void, this vertical void, appears first and foremost as like a disruption of the spatial scheme of the Western. Yeah. Like the first thing it does is just set everything awry. Yes. Around it, in a way that I thought was just, and so like I said, it the stuff I find challenging about the western sometimes that completely mythical sense of space was completely addressed here like yeah it was yeah and what i liked about the void as well is it threw space but also threw time into yes. question as well yes. so there were huge issues about temporality for yep. example he's out on the on the the western uh extremity of his property mm. staring at cattle and lenses and there's like a glitch mm. and all of a sudden two hours have passed yep. and very reminiscent of those alien abduction um first-hand accounts which and, was quite uh atmospheric and then that yes. that tied itself into his own shadowy backstory yep. and the own gaps in his own self-knowledge yep. and i think to that end it really it really um weaponized uh josh brolin's on-screen persona his yep. taciturn mm. unknow- unknowability mm. and it turned it and it turned it into a narrative point mm. as well so you know his his taciturn stoic mm. you know uh you know grave in appearance became mm. Uh, it turned in on itself so that anxiety became internalised in some ways mm. and he became almost a kind of shell a kind of mythic shell and of a character it's funny you say that because I completely agree about the shell I mean what what this reminded me of so much was Westworld so I mm. felt like you know in Westworld 
you no longer have a Western topography in a realistic sense. It's more like it's a topology. It's like this imaginary landscape that's entirely artificial mm. and entirely fabricated and which everyone who seems to be a type, like the Josh Brolin character, is just a shell. Mm. And uh, my favourite moments in Westworld were the moments where characters were moving between the connective tissue of mm. different parts of the world. And, and when they were walking around the property or when Josh Brolin was walking around the property, here it reminded me of that. Like it was almost like he and the, the farm were like this fabrication, mm. or this artificial, as you said, this shell, this artificial fabrication, yeah. like in Westworld. Like he's a kind that, of skin puppet. Yeah, that was being staged for someone else's benefit. Yeah, yeah. there's a scene there where he's shirtless. Yep. And uh, it almost re- reminded me of those scenes from The Terminator. Yeah. Where he's co- going back in time mm. and he's uh, clearly, you know, got some cybernetic mm. uh, qualities to him as well. So. Mm. They feel like there are there are lots there's lots of twists in store mm. for whatever this this narrative there's a lot of withholding in mm. this pilot in a strategic way which I think at least worked for me and I found effective. I did too, and it's funny it took me by surprise because at first you know when I said I found the western stuff a bit boring that's actually not entirely true. Like at first I found all the trauma grief stuff a bit boring, but then it actually turns into a murder mystery that's mm. really effective. I mean mm. something else I really liked about it on that note too is. You, know, you think about these kind of latter-day westerns like this in Yellowstone that, you know, deal with the form and its minor phase, I guess. I feel like darkness is a big thing there because the western is so much about sight lines, mm. about, you know, horizons, about vistas. Mm. And th- I remember that Yellowstone, the pile of Yellowstone, has a really sustained, really inky night scene. And the same occurs here. Like, there's a final chase scene at night mm. where it's so dark. It, quite a lot it, of it, night it, scenes yeah, in this. Yeah, yeah. But especially this last one. It collapses... Yeah any sense of spatial boundaries and then it ends with him throwing a, well, I'm giving it away a bit but throwing a body into the void and so the darkness of the void spills out into the darkness of the film yeah. and collapses any kind of any spatial sense yeah. any, any spatial realism so I just I just felt like it was yeah it was really playing with that idea of this classic western setup of a horizon to aspire to what does that mean when the horizon is no longer f- freighted in the way that it once was. Mm. And I, I love the void, not as some concrete alien thing, but just as a way of visualising that, mm. just as, as, as a visual disruption mm. in the Western that mm. intrigued the characters as much as the viewer. Yeah, so I, yeah. I, yeah, I, I was, really like that. There was a lot intriguing and enigmatic about yeah. this pilot. Yeah. Little glitches or um, you know, disruptions in the fabric of reality. Mm. Again, um, again, very Westworld. Yes. Like very Westworld, just something kind of, but without, you know, 20 minute speeches about what was happening. <laughs> yeah. And the image in Poot's character is quite interesting as well. She was great. I thought she was great. I thought she, she really, almost my favourite scenes were with Josh Brolin engaging with the void or engaging with her. Yes. I just, she she yes. brought a real, I don't know exactly a, a levity, but a dynamism to yeah, it. Yeah. She was had great. an offbeat energy and yep. possibly surmising about her motives which maybe uh, just to clarify that she she turns up at the farm she says she's a she's a backpacker she's an she's a writer yeah or an artist and she asks if she can just camp on the property yeah so while this is all happening she's out in some remote part of the property monitoring it in some way again very westworld yes it's like she's monitoring what's happening on some out in the fringes yeah. somewhere she has a kind of messianic vibe to yeah. her yeah and uh yeah, yeah she I, really worked i thought in, she was yeah. really effective inscrutable motives mm. um but there are really inscrutable motives on the part of our, all the major characters mm. in this in this pilot. So it's it's a kind of show, isn't it, where you can see there being some massive perception shift mm. at some point in it, or mm. where 
and at first I didn't, you know, at first I thought it had a bit of a generic indie style, like the, you know, the close-ups and the faces, the bleary, you know, like, it, you know, often directors would just have clo- bleary close-ups when they yeah. had no other style to use. But actually, as it went through, I was like, this actually contributes to the sense of stuff being withheld. Yeah. And the sense of stuff being not necessarily what it seems yeah. in the pilot. Yeah. I mean... You know, uh, the owls are not what they say. The There's a little, little Twin Peaks here it as was well. A bit, I thought, and again, Imogen Poot's character, yeah. I thought had that, tw- she had a playful quality. Yeah. It was very Twin Peaks. It'd be very intriguing to see how this series develops. Yeah. I, I am I am curious. Yeah. But even talking to you has made me realise, I mean, I thought I just liked it, but actually I really liked it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very intrigued as to how they expand the palette here. Do yeah. they incorporate more of the town? Yes. Uh, does the void itself become a sort of portal or wormhole? Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is there some sort of shadowy backstory? I, I really have no sense of where this this pile is heading. I hope the void isn't just like a projection of his own emotional experiences, <laughs> like it's in. Yeah, that's right. That's Murph. right. <laughs> <Murph>. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think in terms of a setup, yep, this will uh, this to me was very effective. Now I can't vouch for the quality of the rest of the series mm. or how it's going to develop, and it may well, you know, proverbially crap the bed, but. Uh, in terms of a pilot that mm. sets up a number of narrative strands, mm. uh, embeds a series of mysteries, mm. creates a series of characters who are there and yet not there. Yep. Um, for me, all of these things had me being hard in. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm maybe not as hard in, but I'm definitely in. And I, I mean, I thought it was inconsistent, but the stuff that made it inconsistent also made it intriguing. Mm. And I, I prefer that to a kind of just the drab kind of defending Jacob, you know, <laughs> seamless kind of style. So the fact it was inconsistent, I thought, at times, but in a way that was jagged and interesting. So I'm an in as well. Great. Cool. Okay, on to our third show for this week. This is an anthology series called Raw. Mm. Um, so it's there's a lot of different people involved in creating it, so I'm just going to break, break down the um, people behind it. It's a series of feminist vignettes, each about like a different woman, and the stories all have names like, you know, the woman who vanished, the woman who disappeared, mm. stuff like that. It's like the Mr. Men uh, <laughs> cartoon books, but for women. By the, well, I don't think that's actually what it's going for. By the way, I was, I was terrified by Mr. Tickle growing up. Oh, yeah. Remember those arms? Oh, yeah, those that arms. That terrified me. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Under the say, door. Yeah, uh, and, and it ended with, he could be right behind you now. <laughs> I, I was terrified by Mr. Tickle. Um, I, I'm not sure it's exactly Mr. Men. I don't think that's exactly what it's going for. But in terms of... In terms of so, yeah, so it's based on a short story collection by Cecilia Ahern, who's an Irish writer. Mm. Um, and the series is created by Liz Flaheve and Carly Mensch. And each episode is written and directed by different people. So this one, the first one, um, The Woman Who Disappeared, is written by Janine Neighbour, directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples. And Janine Neighbour is apparently a well-known like playwright. Um, oh, okay. She's like, a, I think, a Yale fellow. But I think that's it's also an issue, I think, because this feels like a play at times, I think. Mm. And... and to me, not in a good way, but mm. we'll come on to that. Um, the first episode, and the episodes are short. They're only 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's Is- not all bad. It's, yep. Yeah, so Issa Rae, <laughs> Issa Rae plays um, Wanda Shepard. She's a writer. Um, she's an aspiring novelist, but she's just published a really successful autobiography. And it's set to be adapted by Hollywood. And she goes to a meeting in Hollywood about it. And she learned it's going to be adapted instead as a VR experience. And... 
so two things happen at this point. Like she's she's disgusted because she wants it to be a film or a television series and the creative autonomy has been taken out of her hands. And then she starts to become invisible to white people and to white men. And it's what happens from there. So that's, that's the premise. And obviously part of the challenge of um, reviewing an anthology series... Well, no, it's not even an anthology series because in an anthology series, each season's different. Here you have basically... Each episode is different. Mm. Um, part of the challenge... This, I think there's two challenges. Firstly, each episode is very different. But secondly, I think this kind of episodic series has it has the possibility to be very twee. Mm. So, did you see Modern Love? That I didn't. So that was based on New York Times stories of people, you know, falling in love. And just because it is such a short amount to work with, the story can come off as I think quite trite or quite twee. And I, I felt I, I actually don't think that this this form of storytelling works at all in TV. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, and I'm probably a bit biased because I have to say that short stories are not one of my favourite media mediums either. Like, you know, I, I haven't read many short stories. I mean, mm. there are obviously some classics, but I think the short story format in a written form is also hard to do mm. without feeling contrived or twee. Mm. I mean, I, I, I quite like short stories. I like yeah. short films at times. Um, but I just don't think this, this sort of anthology works as a TV series because what's... You know, why would you watch the second one if they're so different? They're made by different people. They've got different cast members. There's only a, the, the loosest type kind of thematic tie-in. I th- I there's think, no narrative hook. I think it's also hard. It's also really hard when there's a very strident political or philosophical perspective. So mm. I have to say, like, I mean, I think Issa Rae is a really good actor. Like, mm. I really like her screen presence. But I thought this was like watching, like, a tweet as a mm. TV series. Like, I thought mm. to get that philosophical kind of impact there it should have either been a lot shorter like a quibby episode almost or mm. a lot longer yeah but as a half hour episode it just totally fizzled i mean halfway through you have the conceit black you know, black woman white guys can't see her and no sooner is a conceit introduced than it ends yeah i thought it ends in a very bland way yeah i also thought that you know the metaphor is i mean i'm sure it's a powerful metaphor it's pretty telegraphed yeah and pretty like it's pretty expository yeah. it's a very clumsy one as well yeah i mean you know, whatever whatever you think about the politics of the show, um, it's it's a very ham-fisted um, uh, uh, allegory. Uh, this first this first episode. Something I wondered is, you know, it's it's written and directed by black women, but the original writer Sally um, Hearn, Sally Hearn, um, uh, Cecilia Cecilia Hearn. It's funny I said Sally because the original writer, you know, is Irish. So mm. I felt this was a bit like watching someone like Sally Rooney <laughs> try to do Black Life in LA. Like it felt like a, it felt to me like a story from her collection yeah. had been ret- which is had been retrofitted mm. for the Black American experience in a way that I just thought was really clumsy. Mm. And like it, at, at one point, you know, when um, Wanderers pitched the VR idea, she mm. says, "Oh, you know, that'll just turn my book into Black People for Dummies." Mm. But I kind of felt like this episode was like black people for dummies yeah, like, it has that didactic expository feel but also of, I found myself thinking like who's actually watching this is this black folk watching or is it this like white guilt watching mm, like it had mm. it had it exuded that it exuded that smugness that I associate with a particular kind of text where that white people watch to show that they're not racist or something yeah. like that it had a very smug expository quality that I just kind of rubbed me up the wrong way there's one thing I loathe and that is self-aggrandizing writer narratives. Yes. And this starts out with you know a very successful celebrity writer uh, who's you know living the lifestyle, and just that sort of yeah, that sort of self-important, pompous writer persona. Ah, mm. oh, just it just it's an automatic out for me. 
in some ways, unless, of course, it's crit critiquing or satirizing it. And here, I mean, just it started with the premise mm. of, uh, you know, a very successful writer. And that's almost the point where I press the ejector seat mm. because that's where the text becomes its own giant pat on the back about the power of art mm. and so forth. Um, you know, I could go on a Station Eleven rant right now, um, but I won't. <laughs> you have got an amazing Station Eleven rant. I mean, look, I mean, yeah, yeah, your, your Station Eleven rant is amazing. I mean, we've got to do that at some point, just at, just just in the archive corner. Look, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, obviously the point of it is that, you know, you can be a writer, you can be a black writer, and be really disempowered in the way that you're treated. I, I just, I just thought as an allegory, like it was so, it was just so ham-fisted and so heavy-handed. And not developed. And I mean, it was, it was like watching a tweet. It was yeah. like watching a tweet yeah. with, with all the snarkiness of a tweet as well. And that's that's fine. I mean, but in that sense, I feel like either something shorter or something longer would have worked. It's, yeah, it's, it also didn't have a very strong, yeah. I mean, it's just fine. I, I just don't know how to respond to it apart no, from that. No. Except it, to it, say, felt like, it felt like, I suppose, it was harking, harking or harkening back to probably the most successful anthology, which is Black Mirror. Yeah, and there was some. But there's a scene right where it, it, there's a scene right where the character stands in front of a mirror, and the mirror reflects back that her blackness makes her invisible. So like it was almost like the writer, like it's pitched at that level of literalism. Right? Yeah, like it's so, it's so literal, and it's also like it's a really interesting conceit, like the idea of like being, you know, black women being invisible. That's a really powerful idea. Like, do something interesting with it. Like, that's like a great mm. Jordan Peele premise. Yeah. Well, like that's like the watermelon woman has got elements of that in it as well. Like, it's it's a really incredible black feminist parable. But mm. the, the the episode didn't do anything with it yeah. beyond the most obvious. But it's beats. It, there was also there was another competing uh, you know high concept uh, premise at work here as well, which was that the idea that uh, her her you know very. Uh, passionately written autobiographical mm. memoir um, was being turned into a VR experience. Mm. And that itself was a, a premise for a very interesting episode. You didn't need the invisibility overlay. You know, you had two yeah, fairly inconsistent con high concept conceits, both of which were just, you know, sketched out mm. rather than explored in any interesting way. So a Black Mirror episode, for example, would have started with that premise, mm. started with the VR and then and then twisted and turned all the way through, as you know, and look, you know, as the as the narrative developed and surprised us in certain ways. And look, but, this is you know, and obviously I may have my own blind spots here. I mean, an issue I have with this, and look, no one's perfect, and no one, no. you know, no, no one, no one, uh, you know, it, it's easy to, to greet a text with like what aboutism, right? But like a text like this, it was in some ways so scathing and so systemic in the way it sets itself up. You can find its own blind spots quite grating. So I just felt like. You know, I felt the series was weird in this respect. And just bear with me because, you know, I want to make sure I articulate this in the white, white, right way. The show is about the experience of being a black woman in America, right? Mm. And the factor that's shaping that first and foremost is race, of mm. course, of course. But also patriarchy shapes that. This is a specifically a woman's story. And the way, the, the way that the episode frames it, it's as if only white men commit patriarchy. It's as if only white men are patriarchal. And of course white models of patriarchy are behind racism but you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white gay man and i know that you know people who are white who you know patriarchy can come from people of different races as well I and mean, that's misogynoir you know so there's this weird thing in the series where every white man is framed as an absolute idiot but there's also this this critique of black patriarchy but it's more tacit and it's not as open so the only black men we see 
who are kind of functional are tacitly framed as queer, I think. I thought both the black men were framed as queer. And the only straight black man we see who is, you know, a healthy kind of, you know, healthy masculinity is her father who only occurs in virtual reality, which has nefarious white designs behind it. So I felt like the show was kind of saying that, you know, the issues facing black women are white men, but also black men. Mm. But the, the critique of white men was so strident and the critique of black, you know, patriarchy is so tacit that it just creates this situation that patriarchy and whiteness are the same thing. And I mm. just I just find that kind of problematic. And I know that can sound like what about is and me saying that, but because the episode is so scathing and so systemic, you know, scare quotes, you know, I feel like saying, well, you know, patriarchy can occur on both sides of the racial divide. Mm. You know, so I just I just felt on the one hand there was this very, very telegraph critique of white men. But there's also a critique in there of black men, but it's nowhere near as overt and nowhere near... And, of course, you know, what keeps black men down has been white men, historically. I get that. But I just... There, I guess I thought there was something a bit disingenuous mm. about about that for a show that was so... For an episode that was so much about this kind of systemic critique. Mm. And, you know, I know the show is not directed at me, you know, like, personally, but I feel like saying, well, you know... White patriarchy can be pretty oppressive. There's a lot of homophobia and misogyny in the black community as well. So I just, mm. it's one of those things where I felt like whiteness became an umbrella term for not just race but gender-based stuff, mm. which I understand at some level, but I just, at the same time, there's something I find a little bit dissonant about that. And I'm only saying that because the episode purports to offer such a systemic critique, mm. I found those kind of blind spots just a bit grating in a way that I wouldn't in other in other shows yeah and i suppose it, the rejoinder would be all oh, it's a satire and satire is you know necessarily you know oversimplify sure um sure a pretty sure. complex that, yeah. um, political landscape but i i i hear what you're saying yeah there, there was something there was something a little bit inelegant about you know well just how systemic this this critique was well just like you know patriarchy transcends right you know patriarchy occurs on both sides of the racial divide and the series kind of, I think, the episode acknowledged that, but also didn't acknowledge that, which, given how strident it was, I don't know. It's just it's a that that's something that I found yeah frustrating. I mean, take someone like Audrey Lord, right? Like you know the um, black feminist critic. I mean, she's a critic who absolutely brilliantly pinpointed the issues with white masculinity and issues with black masculinity. Mm. And she just did it in such a rigorous way. And th- th- there's a rigor to that kind of continuity to being able to critique race and gender in that intersectional way mm. that Audrey Lord did so well that I, I felt it was the op- opposite of what was happening here. And, you know, she, she's a philosopher. This is a television series. I just, that's all I would say, that I just, I felt that for a series that purported to offer such a panoramic critique in half an hour, mm. that stuff I just found a little bit, a little bit grating. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean... And, you know, and, and frustrating because I think Issa... I mean, have you watched much Insecure? I've never watched it, So no. she's, she's great in that. And, like, that's, that's a really amazing, groundbreaking series. So she's, like, she's a great comedian and, she is, and, and a great actor and has great presence. And I just felt like she was, she was put in a vehicle... She was in a vehicle that I think didn't, didn't really work for her strengths as well. Like, I... Yeah, I, I, just, I was like, what, what are people meant to come away from this mm. thinking? And it's, it's like... Do you know what I mean? It's like a like a white guilt watching mm. genre mm. or something that doesn't feel doesn't feel good faith. I don't know. Somehow. Yeah, 
Yeah. Hard, hard thing to articulate. And I'm happy, totally happy to acknowledge my own blind spots as well. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think there's something about this which maybe you know, smacks of tokenism, mm. maybe of you know, content creation mm. to fill a quota mm. in some ways. So, and also the awkwardness of a story that's written by a white Irish woman mm. being transplanted to black LA. Like I know that it's the you know the writer and director of black, but it's I felt there was something. I, I wondered is there a story about invisibility in the original collection by Cecilia O'Hearn, and the race stuff has been put on top of it. Mm. It felt like that. Like it felt like that stuff was an afterthought to a story that already existed. Yeah, and I mean, it's like it's like Sally Rooney. Yeah, doing. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. LA. in South Central. Yeah, it's like, well, why don't you just adapt an actual book by a black female author? Do you know what I mean? Like, there was something, there was that kind of disingenuity to it. Like, yeah. you're adopting a white author, but the first episode is about black, but just adopt. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. there an element of that that was dissonant, I thought. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, it is a it is a small series. It's based on a short uh, uh, short uh, story collection. It obviously uh, has noble intentions. It is trying to serve some worthy political points. But in mm. terms of a, a piece of entertainment or uh, education, educational text, then I don't think this is very successful. No, and I just... Like I said, I mean, you know, I, I just... I didn't really... I didn't really kind of connect with it, and that's fine. Maybe I'm not the person it's meant for. Um, it's hard to know whether I'd watch any more of the series because if the rest of them are as didactic as this, yeah. It's... Well, the next the next episode stars Nicole Kidman as a woman who eats photographs. Yeah, so it's like it's like kind of slightly very, very tweak, tweak and see, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is very literal. So, look, I mean, I happy to hear counter readings, but I, I didn't really. No, as somebody who I think is very invested in all this stuff, I didn't. I didn't wasn't convinced by it as a series. No, so I'm out. Yeah, I think I'm provisional out. Okay, well, fresh from the archives. Mm. Now, Billy, you know I'm a big fan of uh, adventure TV shows. You like, you like your survivalism? I do like my survival shows. And one show that I recommended uh, from the archives, which in some ways I think might be the apotheosis of the mm. survival genre, is a TV series called Alone. Mm. Now, Alone is an adventure reality game show um, Screen on the on the History Channel mm. um, originally, but in Australia it's it is on SBS on demand. Now, what is unique about this survival show is that there is no external camera crew, so all the the survival experiences are self documented. They are effectively every every survival survivalist uh, has their own uh, recording equipment. Ten individuals are sent into a very remote uh, patch of wilderness. Vancouver Island. In this case, Vancouver yeah. Island. They have to survive as long as possible using the limited resources in their particular patch. And with the exception of medical check-ins, they're isolated from anyone else. They can't mm. interact with each other. And they it, can't it, interact it, with the crew. It does a good job of that, doesn't it? Like, although they're all on this single island they're very much in their own self-contained microcosms. Yes, that's within right. Within that ecosystem. <laughs> that's right. You're yeah. very aware of the uh, yeah. the particular ecosystem yeah, yeah. Each, each contestant is because they're separated by bodies of water or mm. impassable mountains. Mm. Um, so you know, w- you know, it's just luck of the draw whether mm. you happen to be you know inhabiting the you know the tundra mm. or the swamp or the uh, you know the, the alpine area mm. um, and so forth. So the way the show works is that effectively it's the last to survive wins. Mm. Contestants can tap out at any time. 
um, or they can be removed if they fail a medical check-in. Mm. Um, so in later series, you see you do see a lot of contestants who are still you know willing to go on, but you know they've lost so much weight or they're you know mm. you know in uh, a condition prior to cardiac arrest that they've got to be basically <laughs> urgently evacuated. Um, and the contestant that stays that survives the longest wins a, the grand total prize. It's of funny. Half a million dollars. In terms of leaving, I think the moment I really realised how realistic this series is was when the guy, the first guy leaves after one night <laughs> yeah. due, due to an encounter with a bear. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. That, that was a great moment. <laughs> so there's been there's definitely um, some interesting uh, elements about this show, but I think the the most incredible one is liability. Mm. How on earth was this was it this show ever approved uh, by the by the lawyers? Of, well, um, and this is something I wonder because just a. a Firstly, I thought this was great. I thought this was so entertaining for a whole lot of reasons. But something I wondered was how do they decide what they're allowed to bring onto mm. the island? And I actually researched a little bit and I saw that starting with the second season, they, they tend to open with a preliminary episode about the selection process. Yes. But I, I, so I was curious about that in terms of liability. And I was also curious about how and when the footage was uploaded. Like, yeah. it's, it's 2015, it's, 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 a, it's, it's not the present. I mean, and so, like, what happens if someone uploads footage of a bear attack and yeah. they get the feed, like, an hour later? You I, was wondering, I was wondering to what extent is this live? Every time you watch this show, you watch, how did someone not die? I know. You know these, these are contestants, you know, uh, effectively, you know, airdrops into these mm. incredibly remote, uh, you know, harsh landscapes mm. that are populated by, you know, Man-eating bears, well, cougars, and this was the wolves. thing. This was the thing that blew my mind. Like, I, again, I I had never seen the reality series where the sense of risk was so strong. And as yeah. you said, primarily because of all the friggin' animals. Yeah. Like, how scary are the American woods? So, like, just I just so, so, some of the the moments that come to mind in this. Like, yeah. when the guy discovers that his campsite is in like a hunting, a, hunt, a, a, a kind of a cougar's hunting trail. Yeah. When we find out that this this island has the largest number of cougar attacks in the United States. Yeah. And, like, the moment at night when, like, the bear comes to the guys. I mean, it was just like, it was, I was astonished that, like, nobody got mauled to death. Yes, yes. But it totally captured. Yes, I love that uncanny moment where the guy realised he's he's camped right in a bear hunting ground. In a bear hunting ground. (laughs) And he sees all the discarded fish carcasses. Yeah, exactly. And then looks in the tree. The fish heads. Well, I was going to say, like, something I thought, like, worked about this. And I, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but, like, for a show that was so clearly realistic... Almost unconsciously, it felt like the people in it were, were channeling horror tropes. Yeah. So, like, this is definitely a Blair Witch Project vibe. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> so, above all, the Blair Witch Project. So, yeah. that scene, I mean, just to fill it in for people listening, is an amazing scene where the guy sets up his campsite and just ventures like 30 yards into the wood and all of a sudden comes across this, you know, bear den, which <laughs> happens to be empty at the moment. But all the signs are there, like the fish heads, like, you know, bones. And he looks up and he sees all the little baby bears in the tree. In the, yeah, looking that was down. incredible. I, I had no idea that baby bears slept in trees. No, I know. But it's, it is, it's the equivalent of that moment in Blair Witch when yeah. they find all the, the sticks hanging up. Yes. And because, and, I mean, yeah, like, did you feel like it felt like a lot of them had Blair Witch on their mind yes. when they were doing it, the way they were shooting it, like the night, yeah. Uh, yeah, the but- night vision. So one of the recurring motifs of the show is people uh, projecting their camera and their camera lights into the into the darkness, yep. and you know, seeing the radius of the of the light, and yeah. you know, it's always what what lies beyond yes. the range of that camera light. Yep. You know, there's always those those noises emanating from the wilderness mm. that you know never beyond the visible, beyond the realm of the visible. And it's also like, you know, it's profoundly uncanny to an Australian, right? Because in some ways, these woods here at least don't look that different to Australian cold climate forests. Mm. But it's like the idea of going to the bush and there being bears yeah. or cougars. Or, yeah. And 
the horror stuff, like uh, in terms of the horror stuff too, I loved like the inexorable dread of Nightfall. Yes. Like one of the characters <laughs> is like, night. it's very Twin Peaks, like one of the characters, the same area as Twin Peaks, one of the characters is like, night comes on quickly here. <laughs> and just like, just like... There's a lot of gothic, yeah, gothicized the, uh, images of the Nightfall. Yeah, and the yeah. dread of animals coming out. <laughs> and like, again, this, this guy who like, you know, on the first day, he's like, I'm doing it for my family, this is a big challenge. And then the first night, he like, must set up a camera, you know, away from the tent. And a bear comes and inspects the tent. And the next morning, he's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, he leaves the next morning because yeah. it's so scary. Like, it was it was scary to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also loved the... Um, I, loved, I loved all the detail. I, mean, I like it too because, I mean... There wasn't it. It genuinely felt like survival television as opposed to reality television. Like there was yeah. no interpersonal bickering or anything. No, it was really just purely about the landscape. Yeah. Um. I mean, I I loved all the stuff about fire. So yes. like, it seems like one of the reasons they chose Vancouver Island is because everything is so soaked mm. that one of the characters says that you know whenever he's been survivalist before he's always been able to make a fire. But then he's like, oh, maybe this is one of those places where you just don't get fire. <laughs> yeah. And all their strategies to get fire, like the sap, the old man's beard, yeah. that, that whatever that fungus was. Yeah. But just something as simple as being surrounded by wood but not being able to make a fire. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the, the extra... The extra, uh, I guess, twist of the knife mm. is they always uh, airdrop these people just at the turn of the seasons. Yes, So right. as the series goes on, it gets colder and more inhospitable. Okay, right. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's particularly, I think this reaches a real apex in the later series. And I haven't actually seen the first season until I watched this pilot here, but right. I have seen some of the later seasons where um, the challenge gets even greater um, by you know, transporting the people uh, and leaving them in the Arctic Circle. Wow, and that that is an incredible series. Where I was, I was going to ask you, I was curious. Like, does it? I read the second season stays on Vancouver Island, but where does it go after that? Like, what's what are the landscapes? So it to? it does tend to stay in those those temperate forests. Okay, and that's that's pretty common. Um, it's been in Patagonia. Um, it's been in Mongolia. Mm. Um, it's often in the northwest territories of Canada. Mm. Um, Yukon, Chilco Lake or uh, Chilico Lake, I should say is. That was in the Arctic Circle, and that was the series that I wow. watched. So the cold um, climate stuff is a part of it. And that, yeah, that, that, that and works. you get a real sense of the turn of seasons. Yeah, that's great. The tap-outs start coming hard and fast with and the first snowfall. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because in its own way, like, it is quite lyrical. Like, mm. it is very much, I mean... Well, the, it starts with an epigraph from Thoreau, as yep. you saw. You know, <laughs> I went to the woods to live deliberately. <laughs> it's like hardcore I Thoreau. I don't quite know what that's what he was actually meaning. No. <laughs> he would endorse this show. I don't but. think this is exactly the same thing. But, <laughs> but it just, because they're not communicating with each other really at all it, it is just about them in in nature yes and it is quite lyrical and quite sublime yeah, absolutely. so it's funny too like it, it's a real cross-section of people and you can tell that like some of them are psychos yes so the, the series just tacitly doesn't doesn't focus too much on them but then some of them are quite normal guys so it's just funny seeing i like the fat guy from florida yeah, yeah. <laughs> just because he seems so out of he kept on he kept on making points he's like I grew up in swamps I, I've grown, I, I live below the water table like it's just, it's just funny seeing people who are transplanted from a totally different kind of bioregion absolutely right yes and then they're you know very confident in their own environment but mm. all of a sudden all their hunting techniques uh. their fire making techniques uh. they just don't they just don't have any uh, application in no. this new environment it was, it was entertaining in the same way as a fictional film yeah I thought it was really yeah, yeah. and I think I think you can see how this this uh, series really uh, honed its craft as it goes on because mm. 
the later seasons they feature a more diverse cast mm. age and gender and I race, wonder about that yeah uh, which is actually very uh, entertaining because yep. you people often defy expectations uh, well, and, and, and that, that's what I like that, that makes sense because even here like they're all white guys but yeah in their it, 30s yeah, yeah basically but even yeah. some of them I thought broke that what you'd expect of the white dude survivalist mould. So you mm. can see how it expands to a broader range of characters. Mm. And it's funny because, you know, you hear about a show like this from a distance. I'm like, oh, is it going to be like, you know, like you know, Bear Grylls, sometimes the heroics get a bit much. Whereas here, like, there's no heroics because there was... I mean, one character said, that was the scariest night of my life. <laughs> like, there's no heroics. No, it's no, just no. kind of Every, like terror. Is, exactly, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And all these, you know, wilderness guides, survival experts, yeah. that these people are not everyday citizens. They're people with some, you know wilderness training mm. um so you and you do see as well especially as conditions get even harsher mm. um you know the wheat being separated from the chaff and some quite ingenious mm. um creative methods of survival kind of MacGyvering exactly vancouver island exactly and uh you know the the season i i, I recall was you know was really gripping mm. you know uh, uh, the eventual winner mm. um hunted wolverines and <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and you know built a uh a, an ancient, uh, you know, um, a native, uh, you know, uh, method for for storing right. for storing game, mm. where he smoked it and then had to had to basically store it on this this platform at you know thirty feet so that other other carnivores wouldn't access it. So wow. it was some really incredible survival feats that just make you you know, wonder at the the ingenuity of mm. of humans. So yeah, look, yeah, I, I, I know I've repeated, but I keep coming back to that moment when he walks away from the campsite and finds a bear dead. Like that was <laughs> that was so scary. But it, yeah, look, it was. I thought it was really entertaining, and it was like it was everything that you want from both real, really more survival television than yeah. reality television. Yeah. In that I love was, all these narratives: the Roe narratives, the yeah. Crusoe narratives, you yeah. know, the the survivalist narratives, because they really, you know, they they just boil down, you know, what it means to be self reliant. Yeah, and to yeah, be, sure to be human and what it was like for early humans to, mm. you know, to rise above the challenges posed by the natural and, environment. And on that note, like, so interesting, like, because I got really interested in Vancouver Island because mm. I'm one of our, like, Dave's, like, Bree, one of our friend's wife, lived, lived there for a while. Right. So I was like, mm. how did she live here? Yeah. But actually, like, the west end of Vancouver Island is inhabited. Mm. So, like, it was just, in terms of what you said about spectrum between living in nature and living in, you know, cities, it was so mm. weird to think that, there's a city on this same island. Yeah, it, it was just yeah. It again, it captured how eerie and weird the American woods can be, just to Australians with all those. Yeah, so I thought I, I thought it was great. I'll probably watch more of it. Yeah. It was really I, entertaining. I think this is definitely the strongest survivalist show yep. that I've it's I've seen thus far. The classic in the genre. Yeah, cool. So, uh, what do you have in store for our next well, archive corner? It, you know, with COVID over the last um, couple of weeks, I've been getting back into some comfort TV shows. Okay, and one in particular I've rewatched and been blown away. I won't say too much now, but been blown away by how immersive it is. So next week, we're going to be going back to 2007. We're going to be going back to the greatest parable of the flip phone era. I'm going to be asking you, who is Gossip Girl? <laughs> Gossip Girl. So we're going to be going all okay. the way back to Gossip Girl. And Blake Lively. I think exactly a bit of Blake Lively. Um, the last great text, I think, of the flip, flip phone era. <laughs> okay. All about flip phones. So, um, okay. I'm hint, rewatching, and I was like, "Wow, this is dated well. This is so entertaining." But well, have you, did you watch much of it at the time? I've never watched it. So I watched quite a bit of it on DVD. I, again, I associate it with the DVD era, but um, and could be interesting at some point, maybe at a later date, to talk about the reboot as well. But yeah, so we're going from we're going from Alone <laughs> to Gossip Girl. Hey, that's what the archive corner is all about. Let's exploring, do it. you know, exactly uncovered our corners of your yeah. of your televisual knowledge. Exactly. So I'm um, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>